and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship this man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just just as if I were present. Hand this man over to Satan, that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Now, there's a lot of lot of things in here that obviously have double meaning. Um, start off this, keep in mind, this is Paul's, what we have historically, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, in this letter, Paul contends, just right off the bat, that there was sexual immorality among the Corinthians. Now, let me talk a little bit about Corinth. We've looked at it before historically and seen that it was a very busy place. It was the center of pretty much everything. If you went from the the southernmost part of of Greece to anywhere, you had to go through Corinth. If you were passing from through the Mediterranean, it was a shortcut to go across that little tiny isthmus between northern Greece and southern Greece, and Corinth was right in the middle. So it had a lot of people there. The most prominent landmark in Corinth is called the Acorinth. It rose to, it's a mountain actually, it rose to a height of about 1900 feet. The most prominent building on that mountain was a temple built to the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was a goddess of love and beauty. Before Paul's time, History tells us that there were some, at least a thousand temple prostitutes that lived and worked there. At night, they even came down to the city and offered their services to the citizens and the foreigners that were passing through because there were so many people passing through. Now, keeping that in mind, we see that the culture of Corinth wasn't exactly moral. To have your most prominent thing in your town be a temple to a goddess that doesn't exist, and that temple has a thousand temple prostitutes that come down into the town and work, it was the probably the epitome of idolatry, vice, and debauchery. That's what kind of town it was. In fact, there was a word, a Greek word, Corinthiazomai, and it literally literally means to Corinthianize or to act like the Corinthians. And it was coined to refer to the immoral practices of that city. They had their own word. They were so immoral that the people of that had their own people of that city had their own word. And as Paul spoke to them in this letter. He was addressing some of these issues. Evidently, 
according to this letter, there were one of there was one of the men that had of the congregation that had actually married his stepmother. Uh, after his father's death or after his father divorced her or whatever reason. Paul was not necessarily only shocked by this offensive situation, but also by the response of the church. Because what they did was nothing. In fact, the Corinthians went the opposite direction. They were actually, and Paul addressed this too, they were actually prideful of their tolerance. They prided themselves that they were tolerant about these type of things. There's a lot of churches today that pride themselves about tolerance. I believe there's nothing wrong with tolerance of certain things. But when it comes to things that are just immoral and against God's word, then you have to draw the line on tolerance. Paul considered this marriage to be incest. This type of relationship was forbidden by the the Old Testament law and it was prohibited by the Roman law. And we know that they weren't exactly the epitome of goodness. So it wasn't just that it was immoral, it was also illegal. And rather than being filled with pride, the Corinthians should have grieved over the situation and excommunicated the offender, which don't jump ahead of me there, because we'll we'll get there. Paul determined that the, by what he had heard that this man was guilty of immorality. He told them that the next time that they gathered in the name of the Lord, that they had the authority to carefully discipline the offender. The church was to ban him and send him into Satan's domain, which would expose the offender to the devil's afflictions. Now, that's scripture. When I read that, that's verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5. When I read that, I went, I really don't know what that means. But I will tell you this. There are several different interpretations, and I'm going to tell you a few of them. When it says, hand this man over to Satan, one view says the man would become so spiritually miserable under the torment of Satan that he would beg for his forgiveness and repent of his sin. Okay? Another interpretation says the devil would afflict him with a physical illness, and the condition will become worse and worse and intolerable to a point where he would have to repent of his sins, and if he didn't, he might die. Another view says that he would be forced to forfeit the power of the Spirit in his life. And this would open up the way, since he didn't have the power of the Spirit in his life, he would be led by Satan, and he would be directed on those worldly desires and impulses, and in turn, would die spiritually and maybe physically. Now, regardless which view you want to look at, the ultimate goal that Paul was instructing the church to was the spiritual preservation of this man. 
It wasn't all about the getting him in line. It was about preserving his soul. The church, and when I say the church, I'm speaking of a body of believers, not this church and this church only, but the church can exist in a world of sin. But it cannot prosper when a world of sin is brought into the church. Here's a good example. A ship in the water is fine, but water in the ship can be disastrous. The members of the Corinthian church, if we have already studied, they were so busy in promoting their their own agendas and their personal divisions over human leadership and, and what person they were saved under. That's what they were really pushing. Well, I was saved under Apollos' ministry, and I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Peter. Well, I follow Paul. I follow Jesus Christ. And they were more concerned with that, and they tolerated this kind of stuff in the church. I believe that Paul's words to the church at Corinth need to be studied and heeded by a lot of churches today. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Not just someone told me, it's a common fact. It's kind of like he said, everybody knows. And what we have already talked with, that this person was involved in an immoral lifestyle with his stepmother. Hopefully it was his stepmother and not his real mother, but either way, it was, it was against the law. In fact, this kind of fornication was so immoral in that day that the Gentiles didn't even have a name for it. There wasn't a specific name because it just didn't happen. It was so far out there that they didn't even have a thing to call it. Now, I will tell you this. We have to be careful. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. We need to be very, very cautious when we go about boasting of our holiness and our spirituality, because it's then that we become an easy mark for the devil. First, First Corinthians 10 and 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Let's look at the King James Version of that. Wherefore, let him that think he's... Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. So we have to be careful. There's this fine line between just flat out judging somebody and saying, you are a horrible person and look at me. Look how spiritual I am. It says take heed when you do that because that's when you can fall. And the, the scripture we read before, it says that everyone has sinned. If someone says they've never sinned, they're a liar.
That's exactly right. Go to him in meekness. Don't go to him with an attitude. And we're, we're going to get there. Here's why it's easy for Christians to sin. We're still in the flesh. That's one thing. We're still in a world with all the temptation. And the world is not a friend of God. And really, it's not a friend of the believers. The third thing is the devil is still running loose. The Bible says that he, he goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The Bible says he's the tempter. According to the Scriptures, it says that he has wiles, snares, and devices. And who does he use them against? Believers. He has great power, and he is not afraid to use them against Christians to lure them into sin. While Paul was speaking about correcting someone that had fallen into sin, we need to be very, very cautious ourselves to not set ourselves up as a judge and place ourselves in this high place of spiritual morality so that we end up ourselves falling. As Christians, if there is sin in our life, we need to recognize it, number one. How do we recognize it? Through prayer, through studying our Bible, hearing the Word preached, hearing the Word taught. We need to repent of it and then forsake it. First John 1 and 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, that's the good part. It doesn't have to stay, stay that way. If a person sins, they don't have to stay in sin. We need to walk with God. We need to avoid the very appearance of evil. We need to seek God in prayer. We need to read and obey His Word. And that those are the places that we'll find victory over sin. Open, unrepentant sin of a member in a church can have an adverse effect on every member. Now be careful where you're going in your mind there. The church at Corinth had a member who was openly involved in immorality. And the church had not mourned over this. In fact, they had done absolutely nothing. It's a problem with a lot of churches today. Sin is tolerated. It's condoned. It's often voted on in the general assemblies of many large organizations. There are several religious organizations right now that are on the brink of splitting over whether or not to allow certain things among the ordained ministers of their organization. And those things are clearly in the Bible as being wrong. Condoning sin. Is it any wonder when people read that in the paper that such and such organization is dividing themselves because they disagree over whether or not ministers should be able to be ordained if they're gay. And they see the church fighting among themselves. 
Is it any wonder they've lost respect for the church? So as we said, if the church let the sin go unpunished, it would adversely affect the entire Christian community. Paul made reference to this through the Feast of the Passover. On the first day of the celebration of the Passover, the Jews sacrificed a lamb and removed all traces of leaven from their house, took everything that would be considered leaven and just got rid of it from the house. The removal of leaven from the house represented the Israelites' flight from Egypt. When they left Egypt, they didn't have time to put yeast or leaven in the bread and let it rise and then bake it. They threw some water and whatever else they put together, but no yeast. They didn't have self-rising flour. They put it all together, and they made bread and took off on the trip. And this was to, to represent their flight out of Egypt. In Paul's illustration and in most illustrations in the New Testament, leaven or yeast represents sin. And just a little bit of leaven will affect an entire lump of dough. That's what Paul said. And just a little bit of sin can affect a large group of people. The Bible speaks of us being a body, members in particular. If that's true, if we were all a body and members in particular, if one member of the body has an affliction... Doesn't it affect us? Paul urged them to remove the leaven that had the yeast in it and get rid of it and start over with a whole new batch. Get rid of the leaven. Get rid of the sin. We as believers, we as Christians need to look at ourselves. If there is something in our life that shouldn't be there, we need to get rid of it. Ideally, we get rid of it on our own. If we are close to God and we have the Spirit of God leading us, the Spirit will convict us of those things in our lives and we will make the move to get rid of it. Go to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. If we confess our sin, what well, wasn't it? I have written, to, written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Paul's remark in, in verse 9 tends to let us believe that even though this is the first letter to the Corinthians that we have in, in our possession from history, that he had written a letter before. Because he said, I have written you in a letter. Well, if this is his first one, then what was he speaking about there? So probably he had written another letter to them specifically about associating with sexually immoral people. He did not mean that they were supposed to completely disassociate themselves 
from unbelievers. Even those that were just wicked. Because he said, if you did that, you'd have to leave this world. Good point. And there weren't a lot of spaceships back in Paul's day. You know, disassociate yourself from those specifically that I'm talking about. There are people that take this so far in the wrong direction that they don't want to have anything to do with anybody that they don't think is as good as them because they're so spiritual. exactly right what Paul was saying is that they were to dis- disassociate themselves with those who claimed to be Christians but whose behavior indicated otherwise verse 13 verse 10 through 13 I'm sorry verse 11 but now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Boy, that's a scripture a lot of us haven't memorized. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Here we go back to that expelling somebody. Throwing somebody out. The Corinthians were not to even eat with somebody that came under that category that Paul was talking about. But it wasn't just this one man. He talked about other things too, such as idolatry, greed, damaging others' reputation, gossip, drunkenness, and cheating or stealing, which kind of go hand in hand. Now, before we start throwing everybody out of the church, let's take a look at exactly what he was trying to say. It was not the place of the church to judge the world. But they were to look at among themselves, not in order to judge, but in order to help. And the person that they were supposed to disfellowship and I I dislike using that word, but it's a word that's used in churches, was a person who flagrantly and persistently lived in sin and consistently called themselves a believer and consistently called themselves a member of the church at Corinth. Even though the people in the church and everybody else around town knew that, That's the person that Paul was speaking of. And Paul had told him to exclude him from the church. Paul wanted his readers to gently, yet firmly, direct the offender towards repentance, 
so that he could be restored to fellowship. The ultimate goal was not to kick him out of church and send him to hell. The ultimate goal was to restore him back to the place where he should have been all along. Paul's instructions in this passage, and we have to keep this in context, he is speaking of the very last step in a four-step process that is laid out in another place in the Bible. This is not a call. For as soon as you see somebody do something wrong, you run to pastor and pastor takes them to the door and kicks them to the curb. That's not what this is. In fact, let's read, let's go to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. This is the process. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Don't tell 14 other people what he did and that I'm going to go straighten him out. It says if he sins against you, go and show him his fault. Tell him what he did and it's just between the two of you. If you do anything other than that, you're just as guilty of sin as he is. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. That's the ultimate Good thing that happens. Next verse. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter be it may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If that doesn't work, then get a couple other people, and hopefully not the biggest gossipers in the church, and take them and sit down with the person and say, look, brother, you you got to change. you got to get your life straightened out. This thing that you're doing is wrong. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to them, to even the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That's where the disfellowship thing came in. They didn't think too much of tax collectors back then. See, what Paul was talking about was the very last step in this four-step process. What some people have done, they have skipped over the first three steps of this, and they love this 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because it gives them a big giant bat to just go beat somebody with. That wasn't the point. It is only after the first three avenues have been completely exhausted that a church should ever resort to the last one. I believe that God wants His church to be doctrinally pure and morally pure. Does a church have the scriptural authority to deal with doctrinal error and immorality in the congregation? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. There is Bible for it. The church not only has the authority, but it also has a commandment to do that. 
We are told to do that as a church. Now, there were people, there will be people today that will object to any form of discipline being exercised in the church. Failure to exercise discipline against those guilty of doctrinal heresy has resulted in a lot of major denominations been taken over by modernist, or as Bill O'Reilly calls them, the secular progressive left. People that absolutely tolerate anything. They are so tolerant that everything's okay. If you want to have people come to the high school, which happened in Denver, and you have a group of adults come to a high school in a mandatory meeting, and you want to have them tell the students that it's okay to smoke marijuana, it's okay to take ecstasy, that a lot of psychiatrists use it in sessions, it's okay to have unprotected sex, and it's okay to, to experiment with sex with someone of the same gender. That happened in a high school. And you would think the parents would be outraged. I saw a news conference to where they called on the, the, the board, the school board, to fire the principal. And there were parents that came up to the podium and spoke in defense of the principal. Why? They're tolerant. They just want to tolerate everything. And I'm not saying being judgmental, but I'm also saying there is a place where you draw the line between judgmental and tolerant of anything and everything. If a church fails to discipline those who are guilty of open immorality, it loses its testimony to the community. I look at a large church of 15, 16,000 that Pastor Ted Haggard, who was a, a tremendous minister, but he had issues in his life. And I believe that he has repented and that he has gotten into some things that will help him change and get his life back together. But that church did exactly what the Bible says. As harsh as that may seem, he's no longer the pastor of that church. I believe that sin in general and that sin in particular should be preached from the pulpit. As I was studying my lesson this week, Gary and I, that shares my office with me, we, were, we talk a lot about what I happen to be studying. And that was the topic of one of the things. How many churches nowadays ever even speak of sin? Nobody wants to offend anybody, so we don't talk about sin because somebody might leave. And they might be a, a good tithe payer. If teaching and preaching about sin is done in the right way, it will keep people from going into sin. 
But the key to that is to be done in the right way. That's exactly where it came from. And it's amazing that the people or that that secular progressive community that is so tolerant, about the only thing that they're not tolerant of are Christians. That's kind of where they draw the line for themselves. I don't mean to get political there. It It does seem a shame that there are a lot of ministers in churches today that are literally afraid to preach about sin. I'm sorry? That's, that's right. So what are the things we're supposed to be concerned with? One thing is immorality, as it was spoken of in 1 Corinthians. It can't be tolerated in the church. Another thing is false doctrine. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. And I am hurrying, I promise. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about the words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Oh my goodness. How much of that goes on today? We just recently talked a little bit about that in Sunday school. 1 Timothy 1 and 20. Among them are Hymenus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.16. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Read 17 through 19. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenus, the guy we just talked about, and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. 1 Timothy 6 and 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Those false doctrines that were in the church, Paul wrote time and time again to stay away from them. He, in fact, in one place he said, I've turned these two guys, just turned them over to Satan. What else do we need to avoid? A disorderly walk. 2 Thessalonians 3 and 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. Verse 11. We hear that some of you are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Now, he wasn't talking about sexual immorality here. He was talking about busy bodies, gossips. 
People that, they aren't busy, they're just busy bodies. People that were on the phone constantly talking about everybody's mistakes. What else should we avoid? Divisions contrary to the Bible. Romans 6, 17, and 18. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Titus 3 and 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. There is no reason to let division about the Bible become a part of the church. It serves no purpose. It's no better than just out and out immoral gross sin. It serves the same purpose that it tears down the body of Christ. Paul said to flee away from it. Just stay away from it completely. And then we've already seen in Matthew, and we won't read it again, that we were supposed to stay away from someone who has an unrepentant attitude over sin. I believe that Christian discipline in the church has fallen into such a negative light because it has been practiced in an unscriptural manner most of the time. I'll say that again. I believe that Christian discipline in the church has fallen into a negative light because it has fallen, has been practiced in such an unscriptural manner. Amen. The way that churches dealt with these things a lot of times does not go by the Bible. It goes by somebody's own personal opinion. Harshness, bitterness, and hatred have absolutely no place in church discipline. If such business is conducted in a spirit of anger and with emotion, personal emotions, it will probably do more harm than it does good. I believe that church members should be mourning and praying if someone is guilty of sin. Not gloating. Church discipline should be carried out in the scriptural manner with humility and meekness by those that are taking action. Not with that I'm somebody and I'm going to tell you this is the way it's going to be. Who is that going to help? I believe that a firm and uncompromising stand is essential. And I believe there has to be love for the brother that has erred. Whatever we do, we have to do it in love. Not for revenge. I believe there should be full forgiveness for someone who repents and confesses. Luke 17 and 3. Look what it says. So watch yourselves. If a brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. See, a lot of people in churches that, that take care of discipline, 
they forget that Scripture. That if a person repents, forgive them. If God forgives them, why wouldn't we? I believe that a proper attitude towards discipline in church, if it's done right, will not turn us into Pharisees. It will not turn us into spies and snoopers for Jesus. It will not bring about an outbreak of gossip fever among the church. If a person gets satisfaction or pleasure out of talking about the sin of a fellow believer... I can assure you that that person's heart isn't right to start with. When we see a Christian in sin, we need to be heartbroken about it. When we see a man of God that pastors a church that that commits some kind of a, a, a sin and he falls, we don't need to gloat about that. If we do, we are wrong. We should be heartbroken about that because that is a soul. And not only him, but how many other people might fall because of what he did. Look at the repercussions of just that one person falling. I believe that if a person has sinned, We should welcome them to attend our church if they have repented so that they can be fed by teaching and the other ministries so that they can grow an understanding as to what a Christian really should be. With that being said, if they continue in unbiblical living, they won't be a part of leadership in ministry. The goal of a Christian life is not simply to get away from sin, but to draw closer to God. Our sign does not say High Point Church of Brandon, helping you stay away from sin. It says helping you to reach the high point in your walk with Christ. The cool thing is that when we draw closer to Christ, we automatically draw further away from sin. So if we can do what the sign says, and we can help people reach that high point in their walk with Christ, they will automatically move away from sin. Since Jesus and sin can't dwell together, getting away from sin is really just what takes place when a person's drawn to Jesus. That's why we have to be the light of the world so that people will be drawn to Christ. When they're drawn to Christ, that means they're drawn out of sin. Our ultimate goal as believers, and a lot of people don't believe this in some churches, is not to go find somebody doing something wrong. It's to help everybody turn their life to Christ and live a godly life. And when they do that, they don't have to worry about that stuff. And I will point out one thing to you. The passage that we read in 1 Corinthians 
today is the only example in the Bible where someone is actually excommunicated or disfellowshipped. It wasn't a real common thing. It had to get to a really bad place before that happened. And, and that charge, if you remember, was a pretty serious charge. Paul didn't say there's just a, a sin in the church. It wasn't over someone having a television in their house. Oh, yeah. There's people been disfellowshipped from churches because they had a TV in their house. As sad as that is. But the sin that Paul was talking about was a sin that was even looked down on by unbelievers. It wasn't just a sin by believers' standards. It was a sin by the people that were pagans. And we can assume by the way the text is written that it was an ongoing thing, not just a one-time thing. So let's not jump to conclusions about this man and about Paul's teaching about correction among the church. It's not the first step to just grab somebody up by the neck and throw them out the door. There's a lot of things take place way before that happens. Paul said, deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The NIV says, or for the destruction of the sinful nature. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Here's what you do, but here's why you do it. Another version, uh, translation of the Bible says, for the salvation of his soul. You only do it for one reason. That's for the salvation of his soul. Not to make yourself feel good because you got to pitch somebody out. So how does turning one over to the devil actually save their soul? The hope is, and this is, again, my personal opinion. We talked about several other opinions. I believe that the hope is that the events in the sinner's life will unfold so that he will have no other choice but to return to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. That's the only reason. It's exactly right. And I will say this. We, we read the Scripture that if, if somebody asks for forgiveness to forgive them, if that person comes back to church you, and they've repented of their sin, they are your brother. I don't care what they did. If they've been forgiven, that person is your brother and you need to treat them like your brother. The Bible says the wages of death, the wages of sin, is death. Do we really want that to happen to any of our brothers? Of course not. 
And I know there might be nobody here today, but somebody that listens to this online or on CD who might be thinking, that, that just doesn't sound right. And there might be somebody else thinking, wow, this is my chance to get rid of somebody I don't like. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This is not a call to vigilanteism. This is not a call to go round up a posse and let's go chase somebody down and hang them. It's not a license to go around judging fellow believers on your personal opinions. It is not a cause to bring discord in the church. This was about a specific believer who refused to repent for an obvious sin that was widely known among believers and unbelievers. It was a specific circumstance. This is not a call for us to call everyone out every time they stumble. Because if that was true, hold on, because sooner or later you'll get called out. Jesus spent 13% of all his discourses warning about hell. That means he did talk about it. 13%. That also means he spent 87% of his time talking about something else. I believe that we do have to point out sin. I believe that we do have to talk about sin. Let me tell you about four doctors, and you tell me which one you think is the most loving. The first one's name was Dr. Scare. Dr. Scare walked around the hospital yelling, You're going to die! You're going to die! He was scary. He was unreasonable, too, because he didn't tell people why they were going to die. He just told them they were going to die. Is he a good doctor? The second doctor is Dr. Wu. He walks around town outside the hospital and he invites everybody to stop by the hospital because they have the best free frozen yogurt anywhere in town. And they also have these really nice social meetings a couple times a week. Stop by sometime. Is he a good doctor? And the third doctor is Dr. Love. Dr. Love loves everyone. He likes to sit and listen to people's problems. And he likes to pat him on the back and tell him everything's going to be okay. But he never examines them. And he never tells them that they have a disease that is terminal and that they're going to die. He doesn't think that's very loving. So they just walk away thinking everything's fine. When really the whole time they're sick and dying and they don't even know it. Is he a good doctor? Love doesn't try to make someone feel good even if they're sick and dying. Real love listens to someone, examines the disease, and offers them a cure. That's real love. And the fourth doctor is Dr. Reason. He has a great bedside manner, but he still takes out the time to examine the patient. And he breaks the news to him gently and lovingly, but nevertheless, he breaks the bad news to him that, hey, you have a disease that could, that could kill you. 
when the patient maybe starts to, to tremble or the fear comes across their face, he says, but wait, wait, wait. I've got great news for you. There's a cure. And when he does that, the patient desires the cure. That's a good doctor. For a doctor to do anything less would be medical malpractice. For Christians to do anything less is Christian malpractice. And sadly, there's a lot of that going on in churches around the country. And Dr. Love says, but, but Jesus came to love, not to judge. And Dr. Love, you're right. The first time He came, He came to save and to love. But the Bible says that the second time He comes, it will be to judge. And these facts that we have talked about today are not just for the unsaved. They are not just for those that have fallen into gross sin and have refused to repent even when they're confronted. These facts are for all of us. We are going to be judged someday by a standard. And that standard isn't one that, that came out of a rule book of some organization that was written by a bunch of self-righteous old men sitting around discussing their personal preferences. Amen. That's not what we're going to be judged by. We are going to be judged by perfection. Does that mean we have to be perfect? No, but it means we sure need to be striving for it. And I believe that means leaving behind anything that would hinder us in our walk with God. I believe that it also means if we are tempting, if we are attempting to help someone that is in sin, let it be for that reason and that reason alone. There is no place in Paul's writing about approaching a person that's in sin and when you approach them to have a self-righteous attitude toward them. He mentions nothing about that. He talks about coming to them with love, coming to them with gentleness, but still speaking the truth. It should hurt us, personally and as a church, if it ever comes to that in a church. As I said earlier, Paul told the church at Corinth that a, a man's spiritual preservation was the ultimate goal of any action that the church took. And I'll close with this. Our only motive should be to help that person to get back on track, get their life straightened out, so that someday we can rejoice together in heaven. God bless you.